Father, I pray for this message this morning, this, this word, Lord, from your Bible. This message from Philippians, from a heart of a pastor to a congregation that he loved. As Paul poured out his heart, I pray as we see these three short verses, Father, that you'd stir us. I pray that our hearts are open, Lord, that we'd listen. May you move us, Lord, to action. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in Philippians chapter 3. Pastor Ryan, a couple weeks ago, preached a message that I thought was spot on, man. That was a great message. Desire does not save was the message. And when he began that message, he said that 80% of Americans believe that they're Christians, but only half of them believe that the way to God is through Christ. There's a real disconnect there, is there not? It's so amazing the way God works because as he was preaching that message, I had already decided to teach this message. And in today's message, I'm going to show you what does a Christian look like. And Paul is going to outline for us five clear examples, if you will, what genuine faith, what it looks like. Now, most people, when they think about their faith, they want to go to an event. That is, they said a prayer, or they signed a card, or they, or they walked an aisle. I want to share with you some things where, where most people would go to and believe that this is what marks a Christian. But as I share them, know that this is not proof of faith. The first one would be visible morality. That is a person who's very good. You know, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't do those things that other people do. You know, there's a lot of cults that are very visible moral people. But I can guarantee you, since they're a cult, they're going to hell. Another thing would be um, intellectual knowledge. There are people that have a great knowledge base of the Bible, but that does not mean that they're saved. It does not mean that they are, as Jesus would say, born again. Others would, would look at maybe religious involvement or service in the church, that kind of thing. And there are people serving all over the place that don't know the Lord. Conviction of sin, the feeling of guilt. Now, the Bible says that repentance is an evidence of faith, but it never says that guilt is. There are a lot of people that are just guilty. They know they're doing wrong, but they keep on doing it. In our passage today, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul is addressing the church in Philippi. He loved these guys. The church in Philippi had traveled with Paul, if you will. They had supported him on his different missionary journeys. Now, Paul spent a quarter of his missionary career in prisons. Think about that. He was constantly ending up in jail. And the Roman prison system was not pretty. What they typically did to a Roman prisoner, when, when, they, when they were convicted of whatever crime it was, or even when they brought them in, they typically stripped them and flogged them. That means they were whipped with a leather whip. So bruised and bloodied, then they were thrown into a dark, stinky cell without any extra clothing. And oftentimes, many of the prisoners would take their own life. And we need to understand, when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he's writing from a cell. And he's writing this letter as an encouragement to them. This is known as Paul's joy letter. Eighteen different times in this letter, he either says rejoice or have joy. This is a joy letter, but he's writing it chained probably to a guard in a stinking cell. So I want you to kind of picture that setting here. But Paul, even though he loved these Philippians and he loved them, 
He was very concerned for them because wherever Paul went, he was always followed by what was known as Judaizers. And these were very religious people that would come behind his work and they'd try to bring in a Jesus plus religion. You have to do all these other things. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the rituals of Judaism. And plus Jesus, hey, you're saved. And so, so Paul, within this letter, he outlines for them that there are people amongst you that you need to be aware of. The New Testament warns people not to be deceived about the reality of their salvation. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Test yourselves to see if you're of the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not know that you recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. He also said in Titus 1.16, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Jude said, For certain persons have crept into the church unnoticed, those who were long before him marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said this to the church at Laodicea in Revelation. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Serious warnings from the word of God that we are to look at ourselves in reflection and say, you know what, am I in the faith? Now, most people, when they're thinking about their faith, they want to go back to the event. But the way the scripture has us do it, the scripture always points to a changed heart, to a transformed life. Let me say that again. When you're looking for evidence of faith, the scripture says, look at the life that's changed because it's an evidence of a heart that's changed. There's going to be a temptation in this message for everyone here, because as I roll out these points, if you will, of what real salvation looks like, you're going to start thinking about other people. Oh, my Uncle Charlie, he doesn't do that. I don't want you to do that. I want you to think about yourself. I want you to examine yourself. This is a time to look at our own hearts before the Lord, before the word of God and say, Lord, is that me? Let's read the text. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the the same things again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The first thing that Paul's going to point out here is that genuine believers rejoice in the Lord. That is, genuine believers have been given a supernatural ability to have joy, even in very difficult circumstances. Because we have the Holy Spirit, he has given us a supernatural ability to have joy. Now, Paul says here, he says, finally. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is ending his letter here. The great preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, very well then, and then he'd move on to the next point. This is what Paul's doing here. He's saying, very well then, let's go to the next thought here. What Paul had come from in chapter 2, he had ended chapter 2 reflecting on two people he loved very much. The first one was Epaphroditus. Now, you have to understand, Paul's in a jail. The guy is suffering for the gospel. 
And a friend of his from the Philippian church, Epaphroditus, comes with a gift. I mean, what joy that brought him. And so writing back to the Philippians, he's going to send Epaphroditus back to them. And writing back to them, he says that Epaphroditus is a man of high regard. A man of high regard. That's evidence of his faith. And then he goes in about Timothy. He's going to send Timothy also. Now, Timothy was faithful. Timothy had been on many of the missionary journeys with Paul. And in Paul speaking about Timothy to the Philippians, he says he's a man of proven worth. So in chapter 2, he ends that, and then he brings us into this section in chapter 3, where he's going to outline for us what genuine faith looks like compared with these Judaizers, these false teachers, these unbelievers that are posing as if they're part of the church, but they're not. Men of proven character, men of proven faith, these Judaizers. He uses the word my brethren. He's speaking to believers here. He's writing to the believers in in Philippi. He loves them. These are brothers that have stood with him for a long time. And then he says right here, rejoice in the Lord. Joy is such an important theme in the Bible. It's quoted over 300 times in the New Testament. And Paul shares it 18 times here in this book. But look what he does here. He connects rejoicing to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our joy is proportionate to our relationship with Christ. The stronger your relationship with Christ, the more joy you'll have. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, I've learned that joy is more than a sense of comedy. It's more than earthly pleasure. And to a believer, even more than what we call happiness. Joy is the enjoyment of God in relationship. It's that we know God. And he's given us this supernatural ability within us to enjoy him even when the world around us is swirling and out of control. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. Malcolm Muggeridge, he's a British journalist, he's a believer. He says, I can say that I never knew what joy was until I gave up pursuing happiness. I want to give you a definition of biblical joy. Biblical joy is the settled conviction that God sovereignly controls the events of life for the believer's good and for his glory. Let me say that again. Joy is a settled conviction that God sovereignly controls the events of life for our good and for his glory. I was trying to think, for, I know there's some young ones in here, kids listen up. What does it feel like? Because if I was a kid, I'm thinking, man, what's that feel like? What does joy feel like? The only thing I could think of was Christmas. Joy feels like Christmas at any time. You know, you know in the morning, right before you get to go out to the tree and the light's starting to peek through the window. But you have to, I don't know if you like our house. We, had, we made the kids wait until we were up. Okay, it was pretty rough on them, but that's the way it was. And they would be like bouncing in their beds and let us out. And they're filled with so much excitement. It's kind of like that. It's an internal feeling where, you, where you're settled. You know something good is there. You know that God is with you. It's an internal feeling of joy, but things around you could absolutely be falling apart. That's biblical joy. I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, this is happening pretty regularly. In fact, this happened last night. My dog Rebel, he's 10 years old and he's getting old and he never makes it through the night anymore, you know. And so he, he wakes me up about 1.30. I hear him at the back door. Let me out, let me out, let me out, let me out. And so I go downstairs, you know, and I let him out and I'm kind of grumpy. 
you know, I, I woke me up out of a de- dead sleep. And, and so I let him out. He does his business. I let him back in. And, and so I crawl back in bed. And if you're kind of like me, I lay there and I think and I think and I think. And now it's 315. And I say, forget it. I'm getting up. So I get up. And, and if you're like me, I, I like to read the Bible through in a year, every year. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was in Titus and I was at chapter three. And so I picked up my Bible and I'm kind of going I'm kind of grumbly, you know, and, and I begin to read. And, and Paul's talking about in Titus how we're supposed to be subject to our, our rulers. And I'm going, yada, yada, yada. OK, Paul. And I'm reading this right. Verse one, verse two. And now he begins to talk about our sin and how all of us before Christ, you know, that, you know, we're deceitful and disobedient and all these things. I'm going, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I came to verse four. And I'm not kidding you guys. I got to verse four and I felt like God shined a light on my heart and filled it with joy. I want to read it for you. He's talking about how sinful we were. And in verse four, he says, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of the deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Dude, I read that, and I wanted to get up and go outside and wake up the neighbor and say, guys, you've got to see this. It, like, filled me with joy. You've been there? That's kind of a picture of what biblical joy is. Biblical joy is not a humanly produced emotion. It's not something we manufacture. But God has given us the ability through his Spirit to access it. It's actually an act of the will in choosing to obey God. It's an attitude. It's a willingness to say, God, I choose to trust you and I'm choosing joy over this event. And I'm believing that you are good. And whatever is happening in my life is according to your purpose because you're sovereign. And so it's going to be for my good, but it's going to bring you glory, Lord. And I'm going to trust you in that. And when you do that, God pours out joy in your heart. It's a miracle. But it's an evidence of genuine faith. If you're lacking that, if you've never had joy, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. There should be a question mark in your heart right now. Do I know him? Now, I'm not talking, guys, that we're always happy, clappy, joyful. But there's a reality as we walk through this life as Christians that you'll experience that from time to time. Now, Paul likes to teach with repetition. Look at verse one again. He says to write the same things again to you is no trouble for me. And it's a safeguard for you. And what Paul is reflecting on is back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Paul begins 27 and he says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in 28, he says, In no way be alarmed by your opponents. He's using the same two themes. The way you conduct your life is an outward expression of that changed heart. He begins that thought there. And he also says, Hey guys, don't be alarmed by these Judaizers. He's going to deal with both these issues right here in verses 1 through 3. Paul is responsible as a spiritual father to these Philippians and he loves them and he wants to protect them. And he commands us here. It is a command. It's it's, in the Greek. It's called imperative. He commands us to rejoice in the Lord. In his book, Randy Alcorn, it's, it's, it's called God is good faith in the midst of suffering and evil. He writes about a friend of his and her name is Ethel Herr. And Ethel had uh, breast cancer. She had to have a double mastectomy. And two weeks later, she went to the doctor and they had run some tests and she got the bad news. She got the bad news that it had spread. 
And she was with a friend and her friend was so shocked by what the doctor said. She kind of blurted out this question. And I want you to hear what she said. She said, and how do you feel about God now? This is how Ethel responded and Randy Alcorn penned it for her. So I'm going to share with you her words. Ethel said, as I sought to explain what has happened in my spirit, it all became clear to me that God has been preparing me for this moment. He has undergirded me in ways that I never have known before. He has made himself increasingly real and precious to me. He has given me joy such as I've never known before, and I've had no need to work at it. It just comes even amongst tears. He has taught me that no matter how good my genes are or how well I take care of my diet and myself, he will lead me on whatever journey he chooses, and he'll never leave me for a moment in that journey. And he planned it all in such a way that step by step he prepared me for the moment when the doctor brought this difficult news. And I thought to myself, it is good. No matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis or the, or the fearfulness or the uncertainty, the key to knowing God is good is simply knowing him. That's a changed heart that has joy in the midst of a very difficult circumstance. Rejoicing in the Lord is not manufactured, but it's a gift from God, but it's an evidence of our faith. And that's the first thing Paul brings to us. Rejoice in the Lord. The second thing we see here is that genuine believers, they use discernment. They use discernment. Look at verse 2. Paul says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of false circumcision. As believers, we're called to use discernment and wisdom, God-given. Proverbs puts it like this. Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 5 says, For if you cry for discernment, if you lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek for her as silver, if you search for her as hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and you'll discover the knowledge of God. It's a cry of the heart that God would give us wisdom. But it's a gift from God to us. When we have a changed heart, what did he give us? The Holy Spirit. And with that, We've been given the ability to discern good from evil, right from wrong. And it grows in maturity as we grow in the word of God. Now, Paul said to the Philippians back in chapter one, he says, hey, don't be alarmed by those opponents. And right here, he outlines what they look like. He's going to show us what these Judaizers are like. And he uses a verb. It's called blepo, but it's, it's beware. It's a command form of the verb blepo. And so he's saying, hey, beware. Three bewares about these guys. This is what they are. And the first one he says, he says, beware of dogs. Now, this is not like my dog, Rebel. It's not a domestic case, not a little fuzzy, you know, little pup. These are vicious street dogs that roamed in packs, particularly like in Jerusalem and another number of ancient cities. And I saw dogs like this when we, when we went to Thailand on a missions trip. We were in a refugee camp of about 45,000 people. And there were these kind of dogs running around everywhere, and they freaked me out. Because they're real scrawny. You can tell they're sick. They're very skinny, but they're, but they're mean. And they typically ran in packs of like four to eight. And man, I just like, I'm not going there. Stay away from me. Very dangerous. It's a derogatory term. Paul is saying, these Judaizers, they're dogs. Now, he, he lets us know basically what they're like in verse 19. Since we're in Philippians, just look, look over at verse 19. He says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame. And they set their mind on earthly things. This is what these Judaizers were like. Their God was their appetite. Their God was their lusts, their, their pride, their false beliefs. 
It says their glory is their shame. They glory in things that are shameful, not in God. They set their mind on earthly things, not on the things of heaven, not on the things of the Lord, but they set their minds on the things of this earth. They're into themselves. Their appetite is, is to feed their power, their lust. And that's evidence of a false believer. Look at your heart right now. Do you have an appetite for the things of God or do you have an appetite for the things of this world? The Greek word is the word kuon. And I kind of did a little search throughout the Bible and I found this same word for dog in Revelation when it's talking about believers that get to be ushered in into the Lord's presence, but also unbelievers are left out. This is how it is in Revelation 22, 14 and 15. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Scary stuff. And Paul is saying these guys are dogs. You're going to recognize them because they have an appetite for themselves and for the things of this world. They're selfish. They want to take and mutilate and destroy weak-minded believers. It's interesting here, they also use the word dogs. Jews used it when they talked about Gentiles. Did you guys know that? Right? But it's interesting here, Paul is a Jew. He's talking about Jews, but he's relating it to Gentiles. He's calling these Jews dogs. Because what they do is they take Jesus plus. They like to take Jesus plus circumcision and all the rites of Judaism. Then you get salvation. And he said, man, those guys are dogs. He also says right here, evil workers. He says, beware of evil workers. False teachers, they love to pride themselves in the supposed righteousness. They've got it all going on. They look really religious, you know. They've got all these special rites and you've got to do all these things and, and all this kind of stuff. But you know, it's interesting. Paul was once an evil worker. In Acts chapter 7, if you'll remember the story, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, right, He's dragged out of the synagogue and he's taken outside the city to be stoned. And there's Saul, who was Paul, before he was converted. And he's standing there and everybody's laying the coats down as they stone Stephen to death. And then it says in chapter 8, he goes on and he tries to destroy the church, man. He himself was an evil worker, so he knows what he's talking about. Paul calls these evil workers also enemies of the cross. Look over at verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says, For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross. These guys are enemies of the cross. They're concerned with the here and now. Their God is their belly. Their mind is on the things of this world. But look at what, what Paul calls believers. Look at verse 20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Unless a preacher is preaching Christ and Christ crucified, they're a dog, they're an evil worker. And then Paul says another one. He says, beware of false circumcision, false circumcision. Now, the ESV and also the New King James, false circumcision means mutilation. These guys are mutilators of the weak. They want to come in and destroy and gather to themselves the weak minded. And they preach lies. These Jewish legalists, they denied the gospel of grace. They teach that circumcision and keeping of the law of Moses is what you need to add to Jesus. And if you got those things, okay, then you're in, that kind of thing. Can I tell you something about discernment? 
we're called to have discernment as believers. It's one of those gifts that God gives you that we ourselves are called to build on. We're called to mature in discernment. How do we do that? We do it through the Word of God. Turn with me to Hebrews. I want you to see this. This is so important. You're going to grow in your ability to have wisdom and discernment as you grow in the Word of God. And the writer of Hebrews, he challenges those he was writing to about this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. He says, hey, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for somebody to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's still an infant. But solid food is for the mature. And listen to this. Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Do you see that? Because of practice in the word of God, you're able to discern good and evil. You grow in your ability to discern as you grow in your knowledge in the word of God. So important for us as believers. These Jewish people were religious outward, but not inward. They had a form of faith, but not the real deal. Their hearts had become so detached from God that their circumcision, which was a right that that they claimed because of Abraham, had now become uncircumcision. It meant nothing. They're dogs, they're evil workers, they're false circumcision. You know, how easy this is for us guys, people in the church, to let this happen to our hearts. You know, we wear crosses, we got bumper stickers, we listen to Christian music. We do all those things, but yet our lives cannot look anything like a believer in Christ. We look just like the world. Be careful. Do you trust him? Do you want to live for him? Is your God your appetite? Do you glory in shameful things? Is your mind on the stuff here, on the things of heaven? Watch your heart. You know, I was called by a small church recently. They wanted to, to rent our facility on Saturdays. And so I talked to them for a while, and I took the information. I, I need to talk to the staff about that. And, but I said, yeah, I'm going to go check out their website. So I went to the website, and, and, I, and I clicked on, they had a video of, of their pastor preaching. And, you know, he starts out in Genesis. He says, you know, you're created in the image of God. I said, hey, right, okay, got that. And then he goes on to talk about how we're all gods. I was like, dude, big flag, you know, ain't going to happen. Not coming here. Discernment. You need to be discerning. You need to listen. You need to watch. Now, cults, you know, this is the big buzz right now, particularly Mormonism, right? Glenn Beck and all that going on. We need to be discerning with cults because some of them look really good. I mean, Mormons are super moral. They love families and all that kind of stuff. And we want to just kind of agree with them. But you know what? They're polytheists. They believe that Jesus was a created being, that he's a spirit brother of Lucifer. They do not believe in the same Jesus. Use discernment. Jehovah's Witness, they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe you have to earn salvation. There are churches, the Church of Christ, the International Church of Christ specifically, teaches that they only have certain churches in an area and you're only saved if you're in that church and only if you're baptized by them. Discernment. We're called to be discerning. And on and on and on I could go about this. So Paul says, genuine believers rejoice in the Lord. 
genuine believers this used discernment. And then he says genuine believers, they worship God in the spirit. They worship God in the spirit. Look at verse three. It says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God. Now, Paul's talking about, he says, false circumcision. Now he points out true circumcision. And that might be a little confusing for you, but I want to show you what he means because he outlines this in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. This is how Paul explains that. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, by his praise is not for men, but from God. He's saying basically true circumcision or true believers is what he's saying is one who's had a changed heart. That the Holy Spirit has come in and done something. He's changed the very nature and character of the person. And we all know that worship is a primary quality as, as a believer, is it not? We worship the true and living God. We've come here today to worship him. We want to praise him. R- worship was never supposed to be a ritual devoid of faith. The indwelling Holy Spirit prompts us. Now, all of us know the story, I think, about the Samaritan woman. Why don't you turn there with me, John chapter 4. Because Jesus outlines clearly what this worship looks like. John chapter 4. Look at verse 20. John chapter 4, our fathers worship in this mountain. And you people say, in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming and neither, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, and he who is called the Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus says this, now listen, I who speak to you am he. Okay, you have a picture here where where Jesus says, particularly in in verse, verse 20, that our fathers worship in this mountain. Actually, the woman says, our father worships in this mountain. And you say that people in Jerusalem uh, say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. What she's doing is she's looking at a place and outward ritualism stuff, right? She's saying, hey, we have this mountain and this is where we worship. And that must mean that equals worship. And you guys have your mountain and that's where you, you worship and that's what worship is. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, no. He says, look at verse 21. He says, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's saying right here that that you worship here in verse 22 what you do not know. And we worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. When he's talking about spirit there, what he's talking about is internal worship. That there's a change that happens in the heart. To worship God in spirit means that the spirit has come in and has changed the heart. Ezekiel prophesied about this in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel said, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. 
So an unbeliever has a heart of stone, cannot understand what God is doing, does not hear the things of God, has no life. And Jesus is saying, no, you need a new heart. And you worship in the spirit, starting to beat, and in truth. It's not external worship, it's internal. It's a change of the heart. Do you see that in yourselves, that there's been a change that's happened till you receive Christ? Did you see something happen in your life and you say, you know, Lord, my passions are different. It doesn't always have to be exponential, but something must have changed. You have desire of different things. He's changed you. And Jesus also defines for her the second truth. The spirit is the heart that changes. The second truth is in verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He says, what we know, it's knowledge. It's truth. It's the word of God. So worship contains two main elements, a changed heart and the word of God. These are the two things you need. You worship God from the heart that's sold out for him, that's been changed by the Holy Spirit, and it's based on the truth of God's word. You know what happens when that happens? There's evidence that it took place because we suddenly become obedient to that word and we begin to serve him from an open heart. So worship is a changed heart, the truth of God's word, reflected through obedience. Does that make sense? That's what real worship is, that God has done a work internally. And the Bible, when it speaks about that, 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 that this change took place in 2 Corinthians, it says that you're a new creature. It literally says you're new, something brand new. You're different. Do you see that in your life as you reflect and look back? It's not so much the event as much as your heart changed. God did something. I'm different. Do you see it? Changed heart, the word of God, and obedience. And I think there's things that happen, and and you can kind of evidence this. And I, I, I figured out five little effects maybe, and think this through with me. First of all, we worship through joy when the circumstances don't prompt it. I talked about that. There's a change there. We worship through gratitude for the goodness of our Lord. We're thankful. We worship through humility. We don't think more highly than we ought to of ourselves. We worship through giving. We sacrifice for the Lord because we understand, hey, it's all his anyway. And we worship through witnessing. We want to tell somebody. We just can't keep that in. We have a desire to share. So Paul says three things so far. Genuine believers, they rejoice in the Lord. Genuine believers, they use discernment. And we worship God in the spirit. And then he moves on and he says, and we find, they find their glory in Jesus Christ. Look at verse three again. For we're the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, glory, if you were to define that, means God is worthy of praise and honor. And also it talks about brightness and splendor. Basically, it's who do you have your boast in? Do you boast in Christ or you boast in yourself? You know, uh, about a month and a half ago, my wife and I had our 25th wedding anniversary. Praise the Lord. And I, I went to this little jewelry store. Um, this has been a very expensive year. <laughs> and I went to this jewelry store because they sell secondhand jewelry. <laughs> Sorry, dear. <laughs> hey, but it's good stuff. But while I was there, they also have like this gold shop. You know, they take in gold and they repair. And, and I'm kind of looking in the cabinet and I'm trying to find something that I think my wife would like. And, and this lady walked in. I'm, I'm not kidding you guys. I think I recognized her. I think she's on Channel 40. Pretty sure. Okay. I call them the big hair people. You know what I'm talking about? 
And okay. And uh, I could tell she was wealthy because she she was kind. Of, she had a lot. It was really gaudy. She was real gaudy. And, and I could tell she'd had some plastic surgery and all that kind of stuff. And she walked in. I could tell she was angry. And she walks up to the counter and she just starts beating up this girl behind the counter. I bought this bracelet last week. It cost me over $3,000, she says. And she holds up this big old thick gold bracelet. I mean, it's much wider than this watch. Big old gaudy thing. And she says, and the clasp is broken. And, and I demand. And she's going off all of a I'm thinking, man, brutal. This poor girl. And she's going on and on about how much money she has. She starts talking about, I have all this other jewelry. And, you know, I live in Newport. And she's talking about all this kind of stuff. And I'm just over there going, whatever. You know, she's definitely not glorying in Christ right now. And then she starts to say something that just blew my mind. She says, you know something? She goes, I'm a pastor. And she says, I lead revivals. And people come, and I get thousands that come, but not once did I hear her glorify the Lord. Right here it says that genuine believers, they find their glory in Jesus. They find their glory in Jesus. It's not the stuff or the money or that you live in Newport or gold, whatever. But we glory in Christ. Matthew said this in Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Isn't that it? That they see that then there's something different about that person and they say, what is it? And then they give glory to God. That's the difference. And I walked out of that store. I was like, oh man, Lord, thank you so much for my wife. Okay. <laughs> okay. As believers, we glory in Christ our Lord. We boast in the Lord is what he's saying. And then he, he's, what he's doing, he's contrasting, is he not? We glory in Christ. And he's basically saying, hey, these, these non-believers, Judaizers don't. What do they boast in? They boast in their flesh. They boast in themselves. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, guys. Are you boasting in Christ or are you boasting the stuff you do? Do you take a lot of pride in your work? And I'm a man who, you know, does it all. And, you know, God helps those who help themselves. You know that one? No. God blesses the humble. He's opposed to the proud. Do glory in Jesus Christ. So that's four things. Believers rejoice in the Lord. They use discernment. They worship in the spirit. And they find their glory in Christ Jesus. And the last thing that Paul points out there, he says, genuine believers place no confidence in the flesh. This is the very end of verse three. He says, we worship in the spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh represents man's fallen nature. It's not our skin. It's we don't glory in our sin. It's not the flesh that he's talking about. It's the sin. Okay, so when he's speaking about flesh, he's talking about our sin nature, what we've inherited from Adam, that we're sinners. We're born sinners. And Paul is declaring that true circumcision, that is that circumcision of the heart, born-again believers, they don't put their confidence in their old nature, in their flesh. They don't do it. They put their confidence in Christ and what he's done in their life. Just this last week, I had a, had a brother come into my office. And um, I, didn't know, I didn't know really what he wanted to talk to me about. But as we talked, he, he began to share with me a story of what happened to him. As he's literally just out here on La Paz. He's heading up La Paz. And he stopped at a light up here, I guess. And he has a truck that has some bumper stickers on it, Christian bumper stickers. And I guess he, he called them skinheads. Two skinheads pull up next to him. They got the music blaring and the guy rolls down his window and he starts cussing at our brother and choosing him on, you know, kind of egging him on saying, hey, man, man," and, you know, bashing Christianity, bashing his bumper stickers, doing that kind of stuff. And and our brother, you know, did the right thing. He rolled up his window and he said, man, I don't want anything to do with you. And he drove on. 
Well, every light he came to, these guys followed him. And finally, he got in this traffic jam, I guess, somewhere over Paso de Valencia, and he's stuck behind a bunch of cars. And these guys pull up behind him slightly, I guess, and all of a sudden he looks in his rear mirror and they're getting out of the car. And they're walking up to him. The problem is, these guys didn't realize who they were dealing with. This brother is as big as a house, man. And... (laughs) You know, he weighs, he weighs way over 250 pounds, and he comes from a kind of background where he had no problem fighting more than one guy. And so these guys come out, and suddenly he's in the flesh. He steps out of the car, and he gave them what we'd call a whooping, and literally kind of left them there on the ground while the cars are passing by, and he gets back in his truck, and he takes off. Well, there was a consequence to that action. He gets home, and he said he was in the shower, and there was, an, I guess, the doorbell, and as he gets out of the shower, he says, oh, somebody's at the door, and he goes, and it's the police. They took his license and they actually were going to press charges for assault and battery. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm listening to this story. And you know what guys are going to say? I'm in the flesh. You guys like born identity? It's kind of like that. You know, the good guy fighting the bad guy. And, you know, for you kids, it's like Power Rangers. You know what I mean? <laughs> and our brother's like the good guy, you know. And, and so I'm thinking, you know, oh, yeah, I mean, dude, you got them. And I'm thinking, that's right. You know, they deserved it. And that's where my heart is. But I want to, sh- I want to show you here. This is what a believer looks like. My brother, when he got done sharing that story, he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he says, I'm not that person anymore. He goes, I wish I had never done that. He came to confess, guys. He was shamed that he did that. He got back in the old flesh. He began to live the way he used to live and he felt sorry. And the reason he wanted to share with me is because he wanted me to pray with him to ask the Lord's forgiveness. He knew that he had been changed We no longer take our confidence in the flesh, guys. We place no confidence there. Do you see that? His heart had been changed. And at one time, that would have been a great story to share with all the boys, right? But he hadn't told anybody. He just wanted to come to a pastor and say, I blew it. Would you pray for me? You have to admit, that's our walk, right? But it's also about salvation. We take no confidence in the flesh for salvation either, do we? It's all Christ. If anybody could boast in their flesh, who was it? It was Paul, right? I mean, this guy was the Jew of Jews. He had it going on. He had the resume for Judaism. He's the man. I want, I want you to look at Philippians chapter 3 since we're, since we're there. Look at verses 4 through 6. If anyone could have confidence in the flesh, it's Paul. Paul says that though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, he goes, I have more. He goes, I'm circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He has the resume. But Paul has realized through Christ that he puts no confidence there. It is meaningless. And the reason is is that God demands righteousness. We're talking perfection. Heaven is a place where you will not have sin in it. God is perfect. Heaven is perfect. And Paul shows us in verse 9 what he's talking about. Look at verse 9. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, that was the old Paul, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Brothers and sisters, our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. He who became sin for us, right, 
He took our sin upon himself, but he gave us the righteousness of himself on the cross. Jesus Christ. Don't trust your flesh. And if you look at your life and this is how you live according to your own flesh, then there's an issue. Genuine believers do not trust in the flesh, but they trust in Christ. Listen to what Revelation says about heaven. It says, nothing impure will ever, in, will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those who have their names written in the book of life. You must see that there's been a change that's happened. You no longer place your confidence in that stuff, but your confidence is in Christ. And this is how Paul puts it. Look at verses 7 and 8 in chapter 3. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted at loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, for whom I've suffered loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He saw his resume. He saw it didn't add up. And he saw that it counts for absolutely nothing. On our own, we're empty, but in Christ, we have everything. We have his righteousness. I hope you see that today. A genuine believer will not trust his own righteousness to earn salvation, to live out your walk, but you trust daily in Christ. So genuine believers, we rejoice in the Lord. We use discernment. We worship God in the spirit. We find our glory in Christ Jesus, and we place no confidence in the flesh. Okay, there's five things as you review your life. I got to tell you, a convicting message for me as I went through and saying, Lord, help me. But what do we do with it? What does God want us to do as he's outlined these five things for us? I think, first of all, he wants us to review and say, am I living in a way that honors God? Right? Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We can't do that on our own, guys. It's through Christ. But it's evidence that our heart has been changed. And then Paul kind of outlines, I think, for us in verses 13 and 14, what we need to do to keep on. I just want to read it for you. He says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, that is that old nature, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. We're never going to attain perfect righteousness in this life. It's only Christ's righteousness that's perfect. That's why the sanctification process is called a process. And justification and sanctification are not separated. When you're justified, you begin the sanctification process. It's the natural progression. My prayer for this message is that you'll recognize in yourselves that you want it. That you want Christ more than anything. And if you see that there's something missing, then my prayer is that God will show you and convict you of that. I no longer want to doubt. I don't want to be timid. But I want to rejoice in the Lord. I no longer listen to shallow, empty wisdom of this world, but I rely on God. It's given discernment and His Word. I no longer seek God with just emotions, but I worship Him in spirit and in truth. I'm not going to seek my own glory anymore, but I want to seek the glory of Christ. I no longer place my confidence in my own abilities and strength, but I'll place my confidence in the one who saved me. And I'm going to wait for his return. 
Let's pray. Father, I know in, uh, in the service right now, there are many who are rejoicing, Lord. They see themselves, not perfection, but they know, Lord, that you've changed them. That you've given them this new heart, Lord, that beats for Christ. But Father, I also know that there are others that are struggling right now. As they've looked at their life, they've done the review, and they've come up short. Dear Lord, be with us now and do your work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? You know, um, I just want to want to throw this out to you if uh, as I shared that message if there's been a conviction in your heart and you might be a believer you say you know what I know I'm saved but man I'm just not doing it I'm not following the Lord I've, I've been, been relying on my own stuff too long and I want to change I, I want to pray with you now I, I want you to, to take a step of faith and I want you, if you need, and you know it, and from this message you say, I want to grow in Christ, and I just am not doing that, and I need him to come into my life in a very special and new way. Would you just raise your hand with me, if that's you? I want those that are around you to lay hands on you. Brothers and sisters, we're a church, and we want to grow together. So if you have somebody around you that raised their hand, would you place your hands on them? And I want to pray, and you can pray with me in the Spirit, and we're just going to ask the Lord to do a work on the hearts today. Father, it is our prayer that, Lord, you would change us from the inside out. We know that we can't do it, but, Lord, you have done it already on the cross. And so each of us now, we confess that we're sinners, that we have fallen short of your glory. But you offer to us, Lord, that great gift of salvation through Christ. And you also, Lord, you offer us the ability to walk with you in power and strength through the promise of the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, right now we claim that. We claim you, Lord Jesus, as our Lord. We turn and repent from our sins, God, and we turn to you by faith. May you minister to us, Lord. Help us, dear God, to grow in Christ and to be an example to others as we live this life of faith. In Jesus' name we pray.